Welcome to Security Heroes, a podcast by Athena Security. We share real life stories to help connect you to real heroes in the security world. I'm your host, Lisa Falzone. Warning, the following recording contains potentially disturbing content. Listener discretion advised. So joining me today is Mel Cortez. Mel has taken her experience in nursing and the problems she has encountered there to solve the problem of workplace violence in healthcare. She has founded Cortex Gold to help organizations mitigate workplace violence. Mel, I'm really, really excited to have you on our podcast, Security Heroes. In my mind, you are the definition of a hero, so I can't wait to talk to you. So excited to be here. Thank you. And that's so kind of you. You know, I think that everybody has their own capability to be a hero in their own way. And I think it's just finding your purpose and then being able to work towards that. Totally. So just some questions for you. What initially drew you to nursing? So I never wanted to be a nurse. I actually wanted to be a marine biologist. And there's lots of people that like grow up knowing that they're going to be a nurse and that's all they wanted to be. But actually, when I graduated high school, getting ready to graduate high school, my dad was like, if you want any help with school, here's Forbes magazine. These are the top 10 up and coming careers. And I'll give you some money towards one of those. And I was like, oh, okay. And I really liked science. And I was like, I guess I'd never thought about nursing. Nursing was really hard. And, you know, nursing school is very challenging. Actually, I got bachelor's in nursing, which is voted the hardest degree, undergraduate degree to get. So it was quite the challenge but I loved it. I had a really great time in college and I got to do lots of my nursing clinicals at some of the best hospitals in the world. Like Johns Hopkins, we did our children's clinical at Washington in DC at at Children's in DC. And we did our site clinical at Shepherd Pratt. So lots of interesting experiences and probably the best setup that I could have for sure. So I'm grateful to my dad for sure. Awesome. So when you were in nursing school, was there any training on how to deal with workplace violence? I would say no, that I recall. I think there was a lot of focus on therapeutic communication and Mm -hmm. like how to resolve conflict maybe, but not specifically violence. But I was fortunate enough to work in Baltimore. I worked at the University of Maryland shock trauma in early in my career. We averaged nine to 12 gunshot wounds a night. And that was, you know, I worked up in the tower there. They had eight floors of trauma and they had a really great program. I felt very supported despite the violence. Mm -hmm. And then when I started traveling, I saw that that was not the case everywhere else. And I was like, there's a disconnect here because if Baltimore can do it in the midst of one of the most violent cities in the world, other organizations should be able to as well. But Not necessarily in school. It was really later on in my practice that I saw instances of good workplace violence programs, but there were still lots of barriers. And I used to be that instigating nurse. I was that nurse that would like instigate patients sometimes, you know, because I was just frustrated. And the more years I did, the more burnt out I got. And then it was really when I started learning from my security advisor and co-founder is really when I started being like, okay, maybe I should approach it from this direction. And he just started suggesting things that work. Like what? Just for instance, like how to, what to say and when, 
So it's not necessarily, mm-hmm. and it was like, what kind of tone? Like, so it wasn't necessarily what I was saying or what I wasn't saying. It was how it was being said and when it was being said. And so previously in nursing, you're really taught, especially by these older nurses, where you see the interaction that men can have with patients where they kind of more aggressive, like the patient starts, you know, escalating and you're like, okay, sir, sit down. And there's lots of training out there that's still saying, be assertive and set clear boundaries and make it understood that the violence will not be accepted. But really, when you're doing that, you're just instigating the patient because most of the times they're not having organized thought processes. So they don't really care what you're saying at that point. It's kind of better to back off a little bit and be like, hey, let's come at this from a different approach. And so my co-founder is an executive protection specialist. So when they're protecting high profile clients that are in the public eye, they can't body slam people to the ground. They can't be rude, but they still have some of the best training that's out there. So we were able to collaborate and I just started telling him what was happening. And he was actually there one of the nights that I had a probably the catalyst for all of this. And so him being able to see the aftermath, he was like, look, we should do something about this. And that's how Cortex was born. That's awesome. Can you just dive a little bit more into that specific incident and how it was the catalyst and how you came from kind of being instigator to calming things down and just go into that in a little bit more detail? Well, first of all, I think that after COVID, I went to Boston at Massachusetts General at the height of the pandemic, and we had 250 COVID positive intubated patients in-house. I was an experienced ICU nurse traveler at that time, so felt like I needed to be there to help out a lot of these young nurses. And I'm glad I was because we were short like 16 to 20 nurses a shift. It was pretty bad. But after that, I was like, I have a choice. I can either leave nursing altogether or I can stay and try and make a difference. But where will that difference be? So I started kind of traveling around to different hospitals and I started taking nursing supervision roles as a traveler. So basically you're running the entire house on the weekend while or night shift while the administrators are at home. And that's a tap job for a travel nurse because you don't really know the climate, you don't know the demographic, but Mm -hmm. it's the same type of leadership skills that you have anywhere. And I just, I really enjoyed that job. And I remember one night down in the ED, it was a small community hospital and it was very full. We had six patients, psych patients in the back, and it's only designed to hold two psych patients or three. So Mm -hmm. we were doubled up. They were in the hallway. They were instigating each other. And a, a young psych patient who was in a manic episode was involuntarily committed. The police had been called for him multiple times that day to try and deescalate him. And he actually got a hold of the cleaning lady's metal mop. So he started going through the ED, hitting people with the metal mop. And we had tons of patients in the hallway. And one of them was a young pediatric patient that was in the hallway that I happened to be standing next to when all of this happened. And he started hitting me. So I protected the patient while the other staff tried to get the patients out of the way and into the room. But this guy was probably like 6'5", 280, big, big guy. So very intimidating. He knocked all the computers off the stations. He destroyed everything. Security at that hospital was contracted security. So they were unable to touch the patient. So he just wailed on us. So me and another Marine nurse, a former Marine, or I guess once Marine, always Marine, right? So, but she 
And I kind of looked at each other and we made this look and then we just kind of tried our best to detain him. But it was really difficult. And I ended up getting assaulted. And that night, actually, my co-founder, Mr. Dela Cruz, and I were supposed to have a business meeting right at 730 after I had gotten off work to talk about some things. And I didn't show up. And he was texting me, calling me like, are you coming? What's going on? And then he ended up driving by the hospital and saw all the police and everything like that. And he knew that there was an issue. And I think after that, like just seeing me like so shooken up and he was like, you know, I was like, we should do something about this. He's like, yeah, we definitely should. And in the beginning, we had been talking about it because he had a paper to write. He was getting his bachelor's in security management. And he was like, there's no way there's this lack of security in healthcare because he was trying to pull research for it. And I was like, no, there really is. So that kind of those two things kind of sparked us on this journey. And I just remember looking that night and the faces of the nurses and seeing they were young nurses, you know, and seeing how terrified they were. And I just remember telling them all I could think of to tell them was like, this is not okay. This is not okay. Like the ED doc made it sound like it was just normal. But, you know, he went in his office and shut the door. So, I mean, it was kind of like, how do I a change the perceptions of violence among our populations and saying like, yeah, it happens, but it shouldn't be something that we just tolerate anymore. Totally. And there are extenuating circumstances. And of course, the patients are sick or in his case, he was manic bipolar. But there was lots of things that we could have done before that to avoid that situation. And what were those things? And that's where I really started on the hunt to educate myself for, for the past two years. That's what I've been doing is learning and just learning from the best people in the industry. I said, who's the finest fighting force ever to walk the earth, you know, and that's, you know, the Marine Corps. And I was like, let me find as many Marines as I can, as many special forces guys and operators. And they've been so gracious and coming together and helping support us. And one of the executive protection training companies that exists covered six out in California. I mean, Chris Dunn took me under his wing. I was just like, hey, Mal, I think what you're doing is great. It's an uphill battle because healthcare is such a difficult market. But yeah, we're here to support you in any way that we can. And I always said healthcare innovation has always occurred at the bedside of our soldiers, sailors, and Marine. And if anybody was going to help us to, to combat this violence, it was going to be them. And you know what? They really have stood up and supported us. And I continue to be humbled every day that we make kind of leaps and bounds in the industry. And I'm excited about what's to come. Totally. I think it's just so inspirational how you can take just such a horrific act that happened to you and create change and, you know, create this company that you created. And I would love to know more specifically on how you actually help these organizations, how you would help an incident like what you went through, which is just very heroic, but very disturbing that it happened. So would love to know more about that as well. Yeah, I think the first step is prevention. I love that book by Jeff Cooper. You know, he was a Marine as well. And he talks about people and he says that the criminal doesn't fear judge, jury or the jail cell. And if they're going to do something, they're going to do it. You know, and I think it's more of us being educated enough to understand. And the bad guy, most likely we're not going to have professional bad guys coming into these facilities. They're not, you know, going to be facility full of mobsters. Right. So but we do have professional good guys. And there's a lot of them and yeah. they spend their lives, you know, they spend at least four years, you know, when they do their enlistment, learning situational awareness and how to patrol. And, you know, these guys that have been to Afghanistan and Iraq, they have done conflict resolution and violence mitigation 
in a country where they didn't even speak the language and the culture right. and the customs completely different. So they're experts. And a lot of times they come back and they don't have any job sector to go into that's well-paying and they have to start all over, right? So that was one of the things is like utilizing the people that know what they're doing in this space and then using them to be prepared. So preparing with policy and procedure, which is number one. Mm -hmm. What makes us unique at Cortex is that we don't take a blanket cookie cutter training program and say, here, here's a training program. It's three grand and you have to do it and you have to do all of it. And then you get a certification and good mm. luck because that's what they've been doing. And it's not working because the violence is just increasing. Right. So I said, we have to change it somehow. So what we like to do is really do an assessment and a gap analysis and figure out where that organization is and what resources they have. Because like in that story that I told you, that was a small community hospital, one security guard at night. They barely have enough staff. Like that is going to look much different than an organization that has eight campuses and, you know, maybe is funded by research or funded by university funding. So you can't compare the two. They're totally Mm -hmm. different entities, you know, and they have the same regulatory compliance objectives. So if you can take those objectives and modify them and build policy and procedure would be the first step and integrate technology, right? Which is one of the things that I think is going to be really important going forward in the future is understanding what tech to use, where, and why. And then using that as a chance to start discussing things with your staff or start introducing training with the staff. And the staff might not be just training on that technology, you may be able to introduce the subject of self-awareness and how we feel about violence and stress mitigation. And then you might be able to introduce the subject of situational awareness or tactical empathy, which is healthcare workers are really great at being empathetic. They're Mm. not so great at being assertive because I'm four foot 11 and like me going against some big guy like that, my assertive technique is not going to do anything for him. He's not going to be intimidated by me at all. But if I can take an empathetic approach and try and figure out how I can use my nursing judgment and assessment skills to navigate his disorganized behaviors, that's going to be much more effective for me. And so that's where training comes in and training that meets the demographic of the area. It meets the patient population. It meets the needs of the unit, particular unit. And it's not just cookie cutter. And we do it all for the price of a Netflix subscription per person. Awesome. So were there any similar incidences in the years after this where you use the lessons you learned to affect a different outcome? Yeah, actually. So I still work PRN. You know, I like to keep my nursing license. So the easiest way to do that is really to work. And then how can I say that I'm practicing what I preach if I don't practice it? Right. Right. So, and I found a really nice organization that I like here close to home. And so I picked up some night shifts and I was actually there the other night and I heard they have a code green. I heard the code green overhead. The nursing supervisor was a friend of mine. And she always says, when you're there, Mel, and you hear a code green and you have the time, please respond because you're just great at what you do. So I came and the patient was just irate. She didn't care what anybody had to say. She wanted her narcotics. She was having a manic episode. And, you know, it was interesting to see how security came. He was clearly burnt out. He was she arguing with the patient. You know, it just was not. And I went in. The poor nurse that had her was crying because she was cursing at her and calling her all these names. And I said, you know what? You're done. Just you've done a great job. You mm-hmm. need to leave. I'll take care of it. 
And all I did was I started with the basics because that wasn't my patient, right? So in order, she wanted her medication, which she could have. That nurse had just been very, very busy that night and she wasn't a super sick patient. So not that all of our patients aren't a priority, but you have to triage, right? So you have to take care of your sickest patient first. And sometimes that means that the patients with less critical needs are going to wait a little bit. So I think that communication is really important Mm -hmm. and then having the policy to back it up. You know, when the nurse says, hey, I was really busy, you know, this is going to be a little bit of a way, you know, having enough staff to be able to serve the needs of our patients is another big cause of violence. And so I was basically just very professional. I said, what's your name? What's your date of birth? Is this the right medication? And every time she, you know, slandered me or said something, I just ignored it. But I'll tell you, that would not have been that easy if she had been my patient all night. And I had the same assignment that nurse had because I probably would have been like, I can't handle you right now. So there is something to be said for people being human and having an emotional response to something that someone says to you. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think there's some training out there that really makes it seem punitive. That's why I hate the term de-escalation because it says that someone has escalated and it places blame Mm -hmm. on either the patient or the visitor, or me as the care provider, right? And I think that we're all humans in a human experience. We all have these emotions and we're in a high stress environment. So for the care side, my emotions are elevated because I'm very stressed out. Cortisol is just shooting through me all a shift. And if my kid were sick and I felt like someone was in the way of me and my kid, I would do whatever I had to do to get to them. So as far as visitors go, I think they're having a very human response to what's going on as well. And I think same with patients. They're in this fight or flight mode. Some people are terrified to go to the hospital and yet here they are stuck in here. So I think it's just an understanding that no matter what behaviors they exhibit, they're always going to be human behaviors. No one's going to like disappear. No one's going to grow wings and fly away. Now their behaviors may be disorganized, but they're Mm -hmm. the same behaviors. And so that's where the training comes in to teach the staff how to mitigate the behaviors and help them to organize their own behaviors. And that's what I did by just starting with the basics. What's your name? She could tell me that, right? Right. What's your birthday? She could tell me that. So we kind of were able to scale it back a little bit by doing those things. But those are all things that I learned through the EP training and through, you know, Covered Six training and my co-founder, Mr. Dela Cruz, him helping me and just all the other wonderful people that we've met along the way. I don't think I would have been able to calmly do that two years ago. <laughs> yeah. Just, do you feel like the nurses are really the ones that bear the brunt of all this violence? You mentioned the example where, you know, the manager, the doctor on in charge kind of went to his room and you guys were left handling this. I mean, that's just shocking to me. So yeah, if you could just talk about that and, and what your thoughts are on that, given that you have, you are a nurse. Nurses are the nexus of care. You know, they spend the most face time with the patient. There's a quote that I heard that nurses can have to do the job of everyone, but no one else can do the job of the nurse. So like we sometimes are heating up food and finding food for our patients. So we're dietary. Sometimes we're cleaning the room. Sometimes we're respiratory. Sometimes we're physical therapy. We have to be the aide. You know, there's lots of things that we're doing, but no one else can do our job. So we get tasked with a lot of delegation, which makes the nurse the primary person to help mitigate the violence because they can say, hey, I've been with this patient. This is what they're exhibiting. These are the behavioral anomalies. These are the things that I think they need. But in order to do that, they have to be empowered to do that. And I think Mm -hmm. sometimes 
you know, because of the reimbursement structure that we have in the United States, nurses are actually included with room and board cost. So there is no billable service for nursing. And I'm not sure that that's actually the solution. I don't know. That's a whole different conversation. But Mm -hmm. I think also nurses need to understand that they're professionals and they have to act as such. That's advancing your education, keeping up to date with new research, and then also being able to establish yourself as an authority figure. And unfortunately, since COVID, there's been a lot of narrative around vaccines. There's been narrative around you know, but depending on what your Facebook feed looks like, that's what you believe. And so nurses now, there's Dr. Google, right? You can Google anything and figure something out. So nurses aren't really seen as that authority figure that we used to 10 to 15 years ago. So lots of these new nurses coming in too are facing a lot of violence because they just don't know how to hold the form. And I think that's where tools like Chris Voss's negotiation tactics and understanding professionalism. And like in that instance, I gave you with the patient that was upset about her medication. I started with the basics, right? Five rights of medication. I, what's your name? What's your date of birth? Is this the correct medicine? What's your pain scale? And I didn't talk about anything else. I focused on my job as a nurse and that gave her a little bit more confidence and trust in me because she could see that I was, she couldn't manipulate me. And also sometimes, I mean, an escalating situation like that, I can imagine just someone else, like a new face coming in to kind of, you know, is is also just a breath of fresh air, sort of just that almost manager figure coming in and saying, okay, like, how can we solve this? But I'm just amazed about how much, I mean, eight to 12 gunshot wounds a day in Baltimore. I mean, going back a little bit to your earlier career, I mean, that's just crazy. How did they deal with that? What did they deal? How did you deal with if the criminal was with a weapon, you know, in the hospital, in the ER? Found lots of guns, lots of knives. (laughs) You know, I think too, there's this really interesting dynamic because we're trying to save a life and the cops are like trying to search this person and figure out what's going on. And there's this like, sometimes there's this like rift that happens, but I think that patients know they know when they're that sick, they need help. And honestly, the worst thing is when you've got rival gang members. So right. we used to have this binder with all these pictures, right? Right. <laughs> you could identify gang tattoos. And I, I'm pretty good. You know, now I'm like, I watch those gang war shows and I'm like, oh, there's one, you know? Yeah. And so I think it's, they just had a really good handle on we had the support of the university police department okay. was another thing. They were in-house all the time, you know? And so there's actually, I just heard an article on NPR yesterday or the day before about hospitals creating their own PDs, which I think is a great idea. I think it's perfect. I think you've got a whole population of veterans that are willing to jump up and do it totally. and train them properly. So I think that the violence When you live in that environment, I once took care of a patient in Lexington Park, which is a notoriously violent area of Baltimore. And she, I was doing home health at the time because most travel nurses keep like a part-time job or a PRN job so that in between Mm -hmm. assignments, they'll work. I was doing home health and she was 87, had never left her block in the city, never been out of her block. And so if you don't know anything else... Right. How are you supposed to know that at 14, joining a gang when both your parents are addicts and you don't have any food and they're going to take care of you? That seems like a pretty good option to me if I'm 14 and I'm starving. 
And so they don't understand a lot of times that there's better options. And, you know, unfortunately, there's been a lot of systems issues in Baltimore that have allowed that perpetuation of the violence to continue because of the low income status and, you know, the school's embezzlement in the schools. They didn't even have heat. They didn't have food, you know. So you're not providing basic resources to people. So they're going to go find that in whatever way that they can find it. And we had multiple patients that came in multiple times. They'd be like, I got a bullet here. Just leave mm-hmm. it. You know, I bet because it's some bragging rights for me, you know. But by the end of the admission, sometimes you'd have them. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Thank you. You know, I never had a mom and you've been very caring. And I always say to people, the answer is always going to be love, more love, more empathy, right. more caring. But it has to be done in the right way. Yeah, totally. I think more love is just a good general theme overall. So yeah, just going back a little bit, like when was the first time you saved a life? When I started thinking about that question, I had to really think about it because it's been 10 years and I've been a critical care nurse for so long. There's been so many lives, but I think it was the first life I remember there. I was working on a cardiac step-down unit and there was a patient that... This was my first year as a nurse. I'd probably been a nurse maybe like four or five months, you know, and I had worked as an aide before that. So I kind of saw some things, but she was my responsibility, right? And she actually was on the cardiac floor. She came in for CHF or congestive heart failure exacerbation. And the doctor had left the fluid orders on and I didn't know like, you know, to stop the fluid. I mean, a brand new nurse. And she ended up having what we call flash pulmonary edema where her heart and lung system backed up and she was basically drowning. And I knew something was wrong. I knew something wasn't right. I kept calling the doctor. I kept calling. And finally, I called the ICU charge nurse, the rapid response team. And I remember him coming over and being like, you just saved her life. We're going to give her AD of Lasix and she's, we're going to intubate her. And I remember being so panicked, but the ICU nurses were so calm. They knew exactly what to do. They knew what orders to do. And I said, I want to do that that's what I need to do. And so the next job I applied for was in a large medical ICU in Baltimore. We had the busiest ED in the state. Baltimore has a statewide EMS system. So they send patients to all over the state based on the care that they need, not based on location, right? So this particular ICU, the intensivist at the time, the ICU doctor was Dr. Stephen Selinger. He's a pulmonologist, so he's he's a lung doctor, and he's voted Baltimore's top doc 18 years in a row. And so I was fortunate to learn he had residents and he taught, and some of his residents have gone on to be like I saw one actually at Massachusetts General when I was up there for COVID. He w- did his fellowship at NYU and then was a anesthesiology fellow at Massachusetts General. And he was trained by Dr. Stephen Selinger. So it was neat to see like how successful the nurses that have learned from him and doctors mm-hmm. that have learned from it have been in their careers. And that's where I learned everything. And we saved lots of lives. I mean, Dr. Selinger was very talented. That's awesome. Are there any other incidences where you'd want to talk about just any lives that you saved, especially in regards to violence and workplace safety? I think that, you know, unfortunately, we've had a lot of instances where, you know, someone gets hit and then we switch nurses and we're able to deescalate. And, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for 
the way that you approach someone and then understanding your own perceptions of violence. And Uh I think, you know, the statistics right now say that every hour in the U S two nurses are assaulted. That's crazy. And so we did our research and it looked, it's more of like 98% of all healthcare workers have been a victim of violence. So whether it's verbal assault, physical assault, sexual assault, and honestly, People don't look at verbal assault the same as they do as physical assault, but the threat an assault actually Mm. has a psychological response as the actual assault itself because the brain cannot differentiate between the two. So there have been so many instances of where we've been hit, kicked, pinched, bitten. I mean, there anything that you can imagine has probably happened to, to us, especially to someone that's worked in an emergency room or in the ICUs. And unfortunately, it's, it's the way things are right now. And I think that in order to change that, we have to start opening the conversations and have practical new solutions. The old stuff isn't working. And totally. there's new stuff out there. Yeah. I mean, when you think about being a doctor or nurse, it's like, you don't think, I mean, I imagine you don't really think about, okay, I'm going to have to have police force skills, but that's kind of what you're saying is like, okay, you not only need to be, go through this, all this rigorous training and nursing, then you also have to kind of go through self-defense and de-escalation. And it's just crazy that, I mean, and I don't really think people know this. I don't really think the general public knows what you guys are going through. So people are very surprised when I tell yeah. them because a lot of times they're like, I'll have patients like on the cancer side of the unit, and they'll be like, Mel, we haven't seen you in so long. And I'll be like, Well, you know, I have my own business. And I'm like, Well, what do you do? And I tell them, they're like, What? Really? People treat you like that? I'm like, yeah. Yes, every all the time. And it's hard because you walk from one room where someone's just called you every word, you know, and you know, the racism is a really big issue. Race is a huge issue. I've had many patients, especially in the South, that have told me that they don't want me as a nurse. They want a white nurse or that they want, they don't want the black nurse to take care of them or the other way, you know, the other way around. It's just incredible to me. And there isn't really a standard of how to deal with anything. And Mm. that's really what we're trying to do is kind of do some research and we have our ideas about what's best practice. And people are like, well, where have you tried these ideas? You know, I'm like, I use them every day and I think still here, yeah. you know, so doing something right. Yeah. Uh, and so then that's where people, when we first started selling our program, right. You know, those hospital CEOs and the hospital sales process is just terrible. Mm-hmm. And they were always, well, where are you piloting? Where have you done this before? Totally. I'm like, hello. <laughs> Myself. Like, the last, 15 years? Like, does that count for nothing? (laughs) Oh my gosh. I just can't believe that you guys have to to do this. And anyway, if so just in closing, I mean, if you had one piece of advice or one guiding principle every organization should abide by when thinking about workplace security processes, what would it be? So the answer is always gold. Whether you're at the top of the organization or the bottom of the organization and you are the dietary person delivering trays, okay? G is for gauge. Gauge your own personal response to violence. Gauge your situation. Be alert. Be looking around. Don't put yourself in a situation where you can't get out of. The second step is to organize. Figure out what you would do if you were there, right? And as an organization, you're going to gauge by collecting data and comparing, not comparing yourself to another organization, like I said, because you're unique, but gauge where you're at. 
gauge where you want to be. You know, if we don't have goals, we can't get there. Then organize, create a workplace violence team. You want to organize your staff as a personal endeavor. You want to have your thoughts organized. Okay, if this person starts showing signs of escalating, what what would I do next? Or how would I be able to give my medications? What are the meds that I have to give? What, What should I prioritize? And then L, lead. You're as an individual staff member, you're leading the patient towards a coordinated response, right? If I want Mr. Jones to sit back down in the bed, maybe the first thing I need to do is say, hi, are you Mr. Jones? Yes. Okay. Is your birthday this day? Yes. I'm your nurse if he has dementia, right? So you have to really reorient him. From an organizational standpoint, you're leading your staff to make decisions. And the first way to do that is by creating policy and procedure. And the final piece of gold is D for debrief. Go back through everything that happened. Talk about it, you know, with your colleagues. Talk about it in an organizational level and figure out what we could have done better, but not in a punitive way. You know, reward the people for doing what they're trying to do. Understand that they're human and they're going to have an emotional response when someone hits me. I'm sorry, but I don't care how long I've been doing this. If you hit me, I'm going to have some type of a response. I'm from Baltimore, right? (laughs) We might be having a little bit of an issue. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, but it's about how I know my self-awareness and I know I'm like, okay, this guy just hit me. I have to leave this room. I have to go. If he's safe, I have to go. I need to find someone else to take over for me because I need five minutes in the break to cry because I'm real angry. And I, I cry when I'm angry. If you, when you look out in 10 years, like what's your vision for nurse safety? My vision in 10 years is that we have a standard for school safety and healthcare safety and that everybody is working to meet that standard and that we have legislation that supports the research standard, not just suggestions, random suggestions yeah. that are out there. And right. that we have tech integrations that that work and that are commonplace, just like TSA, you know, you know the deal when you go through TSA and nobody fights about it because if you want to get on the airplane, that's what you got to do. So I'm hoping that we can shift towards that area and we can find the funding for it because it's out there. And because really what's going to happen is prevention leads to retention. If we can make people feel safe, then they will want to seek care at our organizations and our staff will want to stay there. So that's a key element. And I think a lot of people are, you know, trying to look for quick fix band-aids, but you can't do that. Security is best done in the layered approach, right? So we have to do the layers and part of the layers start with training your staff all the way out to your perimeter security. So I think in 10 years, we're going to really change the dial on this. And I think that, you know, violence cannot be completely eradicated. You can't tell people that they're never going to get agitated when they have a, a brain bleed or they have a brain tumor or they're hypoxic or, you know, the medical diagnoses that cause agitation and violence. But you can tell them that you'll properly prepare them to avoid it. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you like any technology solutions that you like that you think that can help. If you could talk about that, it'd be great. Yeah. So the thing that I always talk about in specific to you guys in, you know, weapons detection and solutions that are integrated, you know, you guys have a great visitor management system as well. And so I think 
it's like a wound for all you healthcare people out there, right? So a wound is not just the top where you've got some bleeding and some drainage. Sometimes it's necrotic, right? Sometimes we can't even see what's down there. So we have to debride it. We have to get in there and clean it out so we can get to the fresh tissue. But when you heal it, you don't just put a dressing over the top. You have to pack the wound all the way down to the wound bed so that tissue has something to hold on to to grow. And that is your staff at the bedside, is the wound bed. So you got to pack that training, pack that knowledge down there. Because if you don't, it's going to fester and it's going to get infectious and it's going to push the Band-Aid off and everything is going to spill out of that wound. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening to the staff. They're all leaving because nobody packed the wound and they've got this infection going around of burnout and fear and all this other stuff. So if we pack the wound with training and just support, then we can put on things like medicated, you know, ointments, you know, that might be your duress alarms. And then you might have a dressing on top that's, you know, it eats away some of the bacteria and that might be like a weapons detection system. And then over top, you might cover it with a an overarching dressing that's going to to look neat and polished and that might be your perimeter security. But all of that is part of addressing the wound. Mm -hmm. And so if you're bringing in a weapons detection system, that's excellent. And it's part of it because if we don't have a dressing on top, everything's going to fall out anyway. Yeah. So, and thing I say is you can't just cover one exit. You either have to cover all of the entrances and exits or you do some visitor management. And those are both possible, mm-hmm. even with sport staff, you know, even with the, all the limitations financially, blah, blah, blah. There is a way to creatively come up with a solution. And that's why working with an organization like yours, that's very open to discussions, very innovative. That's really important because you guys have a business model that can support organizations as they work to change the system. And I always say that great companies act as scaffolding to the systems as they change. And so that's kind of what I think is really important when we look at integrating technology is understanding that it's a layered approach and making sure you've got all your layers covered and not leaving out the core staff because they're going to be walking through these weapons detection systems and be like, oh, this is great. I'm happy about it. The Mostly when we survey and do pilot, the feedback is very positive, but you want to make sure you get the most ROI and that come from the training too. Absolutely. Training is absolutely critical. It's only as good as the people trained using it. So I think the wound analogy is awesome. And I totally, totally buy into that. You can thank Mr. Dela Cruz for that one. See, okay. I'm just the, the mouth of it, but he's the brains, you know, he's okay. one of the silent but well, deadly types. Well, you sound like you're the brains too. So anyway, <laughs> thank you so much, Mel, for your heroic efforts. And what you are doing to create positive change. So thank you so much for being on this podcast. And we really, really appreciate your time. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. And I love what you guys are doing. And thank you for supporting us as we go forward to take care of patients and families. Love what you're doing too. Security Heroes is brought to you by Athena Security. To find out more about Athena Security and how we help save lives through our weapon detection solution, visit www.athena-security.com. 
And then make sure to search for Security Heroes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Athena, thanks for listening.